Epigenetics Podcast Episode 18. Welcome to the 18th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Andrew Pospisilic. And I'm happy to talk to you now during the Embo, Embo Symposium Metabolism Meets Epigenetics. Thank you, Andrew, for, Andrew, for joining me today. Um, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You earned your PhD in physiology, physiology <laughs> from the University of British Columbia. Um, then you did your postdoc in the lab of Dr. Josef Penninger at the Institute of Molecular Biotechnology in Vienna. Uh, then, in 2010, you established your own laboratory at the Max Planck Institute of Immunobiology and Epigenetics in Freiburg. And then, finally, in 2018, you then joined the Van Andel Institute as a director of its Center for Epigenetics, and you also were a fun founding member of its Metabolic and Nutritional Programming Group. Um, a question I like to ask every guest, and to start off the little podcast here, is how did you become interested in biology and then in pursuing a career in science? Oh, well, so first of all, thanks for having me. Um, it's exciting to be here. Um, I think ever since I was a little kid, I found my grandfather's uh, box of surgical tools. He was a surgeon in the Czech oh, okay. mm -hmm. in the former Czechoslovakia at the time. Uh, and that's kind of when I fell in love with the idea of life sciences and medicine. Uh, and I actually started, for a long time, I was thinking always of medicine, medicine, medicine. Uh, and then just got lucky break, landed in a lab doing an internship at the right time with the right people. And was it during your studies? Or? Yeah, this was uh, in my honors year of physiology uh, at the University of British Columbia. And uh, yeah, then, you know, I I recognized that academia is unique in the, in the sense that um, you continue to chase innovative ideas, you continue to You get to be a kid for the rest of your life. You get to discover new things and play and build puzzles for the rest of your life. Whereas as a doctor, I mean, I think they, it turns into something that can be much more routine if you don't go into research. Uh, and I think that's sort of the lucky stroke that I I was bumped off of my path and actually landed in the right place, the right environment um, that encouraged the open-minded thinking and, and um, had sort of the positive reinforcement to, to, to trigger... Uh, that curiosity, the Neugier, as they say, <laughs> in Germany. And, uh, um, yeah, the scientific career, um, was this also laid out, like, early on, which you pursued, or, um, like, was it a goal for you to, to become, like, leader of your own group? No, I think, you know, I think in life we all bounce down the tunnel of life, and we get taken where the river takes us. You never know when you're going to have good luck and when you're going to have bad luck. Um, so I would say it's good luck that took me the, my path in, in research. Um, I, you know, I met the right mentors at the right time. I, I made the right discoveries at the right time, but those weren't always planned. Um, they were, yeah, I mean, so, some of them were planned. Sometimes you get started on a project and you say, no, this isn't, this isn't working. I want to figure out that. Uh, and that definitely happened in Yosef's lab. Uh, I stumbled across a few findings that really intrigued me, and it was diff different than what Yosef and I had necessarily agreed on at, at the outset. Uh, but he's that right kind of boss that just encourages everything. Um, and that's what took me down the road, road sort of to functional genetics and then eventually to epigenetics. So would you say that besides your own motivation for becoming a science, 
scientist or your own neugier as you said it it's also very important to have the right mentor at a, at a certain time yeah and not just at a certain time i think the whole way along so even now it's jumping to the van andel institute uh part of the reason for the jump is that i i continue to even though i'm a center director i continue to have a mentor in the in the director of the whole institute and that's peter jones and that was a very conscious decision to follow and to take a leadership position where i wasn't the the yep. ultimate leader i was the penultimate <laughs> leader um that i still had someone who cares about my own progress as well so you you talked about the river that is like life um and you traveled a lot during during your scientific career now um why did you do that and did you now find your scientific home where you say well this is going to be my home for the next maybe couple of years or for the next decade or something well i think we transition in science um At, you know, in the training stages, you, you look very specifically for your mentors. Some people want to learn a technique. Some people want to, you know, cure one disease or the other. Um, so for me, I followed the mentors initially. Um, and then I think when you when you mature as a scientific mind, you start really following the ideas. And, and actually, then you can do it anywhere. Um, and, you know, the Van Andel Institute is my home now, and I'm very happy there. Um, but in theory, I could do that research other places. Um, what makes a scientific home is, is the ideas you have um, and the synergy you have with the colleagues around you. And that's what, that's what uh, encourages and sparks the creative process. And then, you know, it's, then it's the team that you bring along with you that actually in, in the case of all the PIs at this meeting, it's, you know, we're not the ones doing the, the, the real work. The real work's done by all the lab, the, by all the team members. Um, and so... You know, your home is wherever they're happy. Your home is wherever the wherever the team is. So let's dive now into your science. Um, you are mainly interested, as I did a little bit of research and read your papers, um, in the big questions, right? <laughs> You're not, not tackling like the little smaller things. Um, it's like obesity and diabetes. Um, why did you choose those diseases to study? Was there like a, a special moment in your life where you said, well, somebody had this disease or something? No, so I'm, I don't fall into that. So there's definitely scientists that have hit tragedy in their lifetime and, and, and pursue that. For me, it was the right mentor at the right time. That was Ray Peterson in Vancouver, and that was, that was what he focused on. Um, I was interested in therapeutically relevant um, projects. Uh, I was interested in the, the diabetes group at the time was really strong in Vancouver, and I was in, interested in the, the, the work and the people in that group. Um, and so slowly, diabetes... You know, I, I, I was involved in developing a therapeutic preclinically, so before it ever became um, a therapy in man and, and sort of proof of concept of those ideas. Um, and I guess the, the best way to think of it now is that that increasing knowledge, you know, held me towards that topic. Mm -hmm. But then it, increasingly it transitioned from something where I was looking to To, to you know help contribute to our therapies and cures and it became the model that I knew the most about um, and epigenetics became the focus of what where my real scientific interests lay um, and so the easiest was to merge what I knew best which was diabetes obesity endocrinology metabolic research with where my passion lay and that was with epigenetic decision making and how at the organismal level um, decisions during development are made that can actually result that each one of us could have been someone else. We could have mm, been yeah. a bit different behaviorally, but also physiologically that we react differently to medicines, that we have a different susceptibility to diseases. 
Before we go to your papers, um, would you agree with the statement that those diseases like obesity and diabetes are often like the primary disease or the primary condition and that other things like the heart attack or high blood pressure or something like that is then a consequence of that? I think it is. It's definitely, um, it's definitely correct. You know, uh, for, for sure, experts would debate little parts of it. Um, as a generalization, it's totally fair. Uh, obesity and diabetes predispose you for... Uh, really many what they call comorbidities or complications. Um, if you have diabetes for 30 years, the chances that you go blind or you have kidney disease or foot disease is enormously uh, raised. Uh, if you have obesity, you're going to have insulin resistance uh, and inflammation, and that's going to predispose you towards cancer, pretty much every single type of cancer. But you know, there's always exceptions to the rule. We have about a third of obese individuals that are healthy, that are metabolically healthy. And And so while the epidemiology is not clear there, those people probably don't have particularly elevated risk of cancer. Um, so while they, in one sense, they are primary diseases, and there's a whole slew of things that, that associate with them, uh, it's, it's not true in every case. So in 2010, you were the first author of a paper that was published in Cell. Um, there you did a genome-wide screen in Drosophila to find factors that were involved in obesity. Um, how did you approach this question? And then... What were the results? How we approached it? Um, I think that's one of one of the I guess think the fewer examples in my career where it was it was partly uh, it was the merger of of excitement and opportunism. Barry Dixon, together with Joseph Penninger and Imba's support, had generated the first the world's first uh, in vivo RNAi knockdown library in Drosophila, mm -hmm. where you could take a process and test every single gene in the genome for its effect on it. And so as an obesity researcher, I said, well, let's take, why not look at every single gene and what they might do to how many, obesity. How many? So f the total number in Drosophila is about 13 or 14,000. And at the time, there was about 85% of the library was made. So we screened, I think in the end, it was about 10,000 of the 14,000 genes. Um, and the results, yeah, you know, you hit 500 genes that are regulating lipid storage in the whole organism. We refined it to tissue specificity. And like all screening approaches, um, you can either rescreen and rescreen and rescreen to get really high N value and high statistical value, or you can use alternate methods to pull out your favorite candidates. And there we used the pathway kind of enrichment idea that we hit we hit many, many factors within the hedgehog signaling pathway um, on the first round of, of real screening. And so that was already a strong enough replicated um, enrichment signal to start tackling it in the mice. And then together with Harold Esterbauer, who I met at the time, uh, we started a great collaboration uh, that lasted really many years, um, which led actually what the, the interesting part about it is we found that um, hedgehog signaling differentially affects white and brown adipose tissue so it blocks white adipose can you just just make it make the difference clear between white and brown? oh so i mean some people say brown adipose tissue is healthy adipose and white is unhealthy that's a bit oversimplified white is what we have in most of our body it's where most of the lipid storage happens and brown is brown because it's chock full of mitochondria so it's actually there to generate heat and keep us warm okay. in mm -hmm. sort of extreme times and because it can burn so much fuel it's it's healthy And so we hedgehog. It turned out together with Harry, we found out that that this is you know it was one of the first pathways ever discovered that could that molecularly distinguished 
the differentiation of the two. So it blocks white adipogenesis and it enhances brown adipogenesis. Does the white uh, yeah, get from the brown or how, how, is, it, how is it? Is it like the, the, the different So they're different. It depends on the, on the animal. In uh, humans, we know the least because we can't do the molecular genetic studies that, to knock things out. In, in mice, there's, there's, a few, there's classic brown adipose tissue, which is really a different lineage of cells. So it's completely okay. different. And then there seems to be in, in white adipose depots, and this seems to be a bit more similar to the human scenario, it seems that some cells can kind of adopt either white or brown fates and can actually switch between the two. It, almost like immune cells are activated, these, these, these white fat cells can be activated in times of cold or stress to become more brown-like. And then they can, you know, so people have thought about cold therapy for humans okay. to kind of cure, cure metabolic diseases. And that, you know, the, really the unique thing that came out of these discoveries um, is we stumbled upon this in Drosophila, and Drosophila don't have brown fat. And so okay. mm -hmm. that shows one of the beauties in science is that that interaction among all different fields of science is that's where you get the 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 the, the real sparks of of discovery, and sometimes they really come from left field where you least expect them. So for sure, we had absolutely no clue we would stumble upon an important brown fat regulator because Drosophila don't have brown fat. Okay. Um, I mean, you said that it was like ten thousand. Genes that you looked at in the screen, how long did this screen take? I mean, it must be a heck of an effort to... Yeah, it was a heck of an effort. There was four of us doing it, two people. So we kind of split the workload and did an immunity screen at the exact mm -hmm. same time with the exact same groups of flies. And we just took half for the metabolic screen and half for the immunity. Um, there was a PhD student at the time, Daniel Schramack, who did it with me. Um, and so we took care of the metabolic side. It took... About two years to screen through everything, uh, every day sitting in the <laughs> microscope. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know that's how you get. You, you, that's how you build great teams, great bonds, great friends for a lifetime. Kind of sitting, yeah, you're <laughs> sitting in the at the on Friday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, every single morning for four hours was sitting at the microscope, screening together as a group of four. And uh, fortunately, Shane Cronin was there as well, and he was full of endless jokes. And he's a really. So how did did the story then continue? Um, that brown fat one did, and it uh, we we it's it's gone on then to a, to the first one of my first postdocs carried it on and, and took it actually towards uh, towards metabolism and cellular metabolism and found out that it potently regulates actually in brown fat glucose uptake as well, okay. mm -hmm. uh, and this is true then in mammalian cells and this was another discordant uh, function, and this actually turned out. Uh, to make an important, so bridging that and, and realizing um, some of the side effects of hedgehog inhibitor therapy in humans, one of which was cramping. And we found that this glucose uptake um, and calcium response that we saw when we activated hedgehog, this was really specific to brown fat, but also muscle. And okay, muscle so and yeah. brown fat are a shared lineage. And so, you know, again, totally serendipitously, by studying hedgehog in brown fat and glucose metabolism in, in, in the cellular context in mice, we figured out what's probably causing cramping on a human therapy that was really, it was, it was so bad that people that are on the hedgehog inhibitor therapy, half of them drop out of using something that can save, you know, that can yeah. save their life yeah. because it's so unbearable, right? And that actually sparked 
uh, two clinicians that we let know. We told them about it and said, you know, you should try with your patients to give them an, you know, because we mapped out the calcium signaling yeah, pathway. Okay. And so then they use, you know, there's available therapeutics to combat that calcium wave that happens. And so sure enough, they so did it. So and combat the side effects. Exactly. So by, by accidentally figuring out the side effect pathway, we ended up helping cancer patients. That's, you know, that's so, a pretty nice goal to have, right? Or a pretty yeah. nice result to have then. In yeah, exactly. Especially when it's not your goal. <laughs> 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 Or it wasn't the primary one. Yeah. So then in another paper, cell paper in 2014, you and your team looked what is now very interesting to me. I mean, not anymore because I've, I became a father not too, far, too long ago. Um, the title of this paper was Paternal Diet Defines Offspring Chromatin State and Intergenerational Obesity. So the question is, what should I have eaten before our little boy was born? And how would that have influenced my epigenome or his epigenome then in the end? So I guess that's the, the 20-year question, probably. Um, that study was in flies again. Okay. We do look at it in mice, and we do know that epigenetic systems can translate environmental and dietary information into really long-term physiological and, and pathophysiological consequences in the next generation. I'm sorry to interrupt you here. How long does it go? How long can it span? I mean, is it just for the next generation or can it in humans span like to the grandchildren and so on and so on? So in epigenetic models, there's definitely evidence that it, these things can go. Past, I mean, that there was in war worms, it was like 14 generations or something. Exactly. Most of the things that go very many generations involve transgenes. So they're okay. artificial systems. Um, yeah. But there is enough evidence to suppose that that things and plants there's evidence across many many generations it's very solid um i think the the most difficult thing to distinguish when we talk about transgenerational effects is whether it's truly an effect where the exact same thing is being recapitulated or whether you get a response in the next in the first offspring that then through a different mechanism creates the second response. So this idea that things last forever implies it's the exact same mechanism recycling and happening again and again. Um, but we know, for instance, if you underfeed a mother or you overfeed a mother, it has a similar off effect on the offspring. The offspring are then metabolic disease susceptible. Um, but those are two opposite interventions. Yeah. So it could be that, you know, it just is all hypothetical now, but you could overfeed a mother, have an effect on the offspring that's, that mimics underfeeding, and then have again an, a metabolic disease effect two generations in a row, but they're actually different intergenerational effects. So there's a, you know, there's a bit of a debate in the epigenetic field whenever things come to this F2, this two-generational burden of proof for, for transgenerationality, I guess you could say. Uh, I try to not take part in the debate. It's difficult enough for any of us to figure out how um, the mechanisms are happening across one single germline transmission. Um, and I think very few people can say that they know for sure that the things across two generations are happening in the exact same mechanism, except for these these artificial but beautiful experimental yeah. systems. Right? What kind of things... Do you mean when you talk about the mechanisms? Is it DNA methylation? Is it histone modifications? Is it remodeling? What do you see, or what did you see? Um, could be anything. So we uh, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> I think that's the holy grail: is what's the exact um, vector? Yeah. It could be metabolites. It could be structural elements. 
you know, it could be membranes, it could be phosphorylated phospholipids in the membrane, it, it could be anything. And almost there's very few things that have been ruled out. And I think okay. it's important at this stage in this field to keep an extremely open mind about those ideas. People focus very much on, as you said, DNA methylation, histone modifications, and small RNAs in particular. There is evidence that those do play a role, and they are quite near to directly involved. Um, but whether they are the, the true necessary and sufficient mechanism, I think is uh, that's still going to take the whole field quite a few years to prove, especially in in the disease-relevant context, definitely in man, but even in mice. We simply can't measure things with enough replicates in a, in a sufficiently controlled uh, experimental context because we don't know enough of the caveats that could be misleading us. Yeah, it's, it's hard and, to, to and control it, right? Also. Hard to control it, and, and quite frankly, as soon as you move to mammals, experiments become very expensive, uh, and so people are forced financially to take what otherwise would be experimental shortcuts, but you know we all have yeah. to do it, and uh, that's where often this debate, well, do I work in yeast, or do I work in the fly, or do I work in C. elegans, or do I work in mouse, or do I work in human? Um, there's a sacrifice. Or C. elegans might be the cheapest. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's definitely the one where the, I would say by far the most progress has been made on intergenerational effects. It's a bizarre model. It has way more small, NR, small RNA pathways than we do. Um, so sometimes it's a bit harder to interpret the data, um, but it's been exceptionally valuable in, in directing the mammalian biologists on what might really be uh, what, my, what are the highest candidates for, for likely vectors in, in, in the mammalian system? <laughs> I want to come back to the paternal diet. Did you find anything that you can maybe give a general <laughs> overview of, of what, what influences? Well, I think you know the research in the past has fallen into two categories, things that are very chronic and long-term. I think one of the really interesting features about the study, um, so that study we used a, a, a sugar diet model And what was really intriguing is just two days of, of high sugar feeding of a father was sufficient to reprogram the offspring. So something within two days of feeding on high sugar was, was, was then transmitted through the sperm that would change the offspring's susceptibility to metabolic disease. And I think, so that's one of the important and interesting facts is, is this really our, our intergenerational control um, you know, reproduction is sensing acutely the exact state of the of the parents. Or you could think of it alternatively, that it's insufficiently buffered against environmentally variables. Mm -hmm. That's the other way to think of it. Um, so what, what kind of time frame do we, do we talk about? When did you, did well, you feed, uh, did you induce the change and when was the... Well, so these were in adult male flies. We just fed them for two days. Um, and, and that was when the, you know, w within one day we could see some effects, two days the effect kind of saturated to its maximal level. We know long-term, much longer-term diets can have an effect. No, I mean, before the, the reproduction. I mean, it, it was two days of, of change diet. Exactly, change diet and, then, and then, Im then immediately Immediately, made it. okay. Yeah, immediately made it. Um, and what was really interesting there is if you... You know, heat heat shock is a is a so thirty minutes of thirty seven degrees to the flies, is a, is is it's a well known um, manipulation that causes quite dramatic chromatin changes and and changes to transcription. But but sperm don't 
have ongoing transcription, really. They're super compacted. Essentially, transcription is still. But 30 minutes of heat shock was sufficient to wipe out this intergenerational response. Okay. Uh, so it highlighted how plastic and how it's integrating multiple signals, um, but how little we know actually about what's going on. And so we, still, we are still chasing that story down. So we think we're getting closer to what the vector might be um, in the form of small RNAs. So... so uh, we did some screening of, of possible pathways, and you know, sure enough, in support of a lot of the C. elegans literature, it looks like small RNAs really are important. Uh, we're still trying to tease that apart now. Uh, we'll see where it goes, but it, it should mature fairly soon now because the, the most difficult studies, uh, which have all centered on trying to dissect and purify you know, mature sperm yep. from male flies <laughs> that are one millimeter long. <laughs> so you can, again, again. you can imagine how small the testes are and yeah. how small, how, how little sperm you get out of a, a male fly. Um, but those, are, the hardest studies have, are, are done now. And now it's really going to be a lot of analysis that, that carries so through to the we end. we could soon read something from... Uh, I hope. <laughs> it depends on the editors Fingers and the crossed. reviewers. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So, uh, funny enough, uh, I will interview Markus Buschbeck uh, in a few minutes uh, mm -hmm. on macro H2A. And during my research, I also saw that you are on a 2017 NSMB paper together. So, what did you help him out or what was the combination here? Uh, he, yeah, he leaned on us a little bit for metabolic support in an exciting study he has. He's much more molecular. He's one of those guys that I'm jealous of. They, they managed to dissect mechanisms better than I ever managed to. Um, And he has an interesting histone variant, so a part of chromatin uh, that, that is, uh, you could say, is a metabolic sensor. It has a domain on the protein that, that can read metabolism. And he's been spending a lot of the last five years figuring out exactly what that's doing. Um, and he started working in metabolic tissues, where we also begin to have some expertise. And uh, actually, one of the postdocs that did the hedgehog stories, who now has his own lab, Raffaella Tepperino, was still in the lab at the time and really took on that role of, of supporting Mar Marcus. Um, yeah, great research. It spawned, you know, the reason that I'm actually at this meeting as well is because that led then to, to you know, Andreas Lederner and Marcus put together a really strong group of people. Five, six years ago, there was not so many people working on chromatin and metabolism. Um, they brought a bunch of us in Europe together to form an ITN uh, EU application for a PhD program on the subject. That that uh, came to reality, and and here we are. This is now this this meeting in Heidelberg is also coincident with our last kind of wrap up meeting for that for so, that network okay. grant. So it's it's over then. Uh, or Basically, the the most of the PhDs are are three to four years into their oh, yeah. their study, so they're nearing the end. They're starting to write their papers, and uh, we had sort of the final dinner. It's not over. It's still <laughs> there's still a lot of bang to happen with a lot of papers that will come out. Oh, uh, but that'll probably happen in in the next year or two. Yeah, I will put a uh, link to that uh, in the show notes so that we can um, all uh, go yeah, to the webpage and, 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 and get the information. So since you started at the Van Andel Institute, uh, yeah, less than uh, two years ago, I guess, uh, what is your roadmap now that you want to follow at this institute? What is your vision for the next five to ten years? So the Van Andel Institute is a, a unique place. It brings across researchers from the most basic that do... Um, structural biology on cryo-EM, all the way to clinical trials that are run okay. out, of, out of the institute. And amongst 35 faculty, we span that really, that entire range of what people often call bench to bedside. And I think that's extremely unique in, a, in such a small place. Um, we have a wonderful administration that uh, is extremely forward-thinking, hardworking, and takes everything off of our shoulders. So it allows us to do as much science as possible. And that's 
part of the choice to go there, but it's that translational aspect and the mix of colleagues where I can, I think one of the biggest challenges for me is merging some of these um, abstract ideas that we study and, and bring them to the human. And that's, uh, it's, a, it's an institute that um, has a lot of clinical links, uh, has a very open mind. Uh, and so my goal is really to see, you know, and, and to try and really to prove uh, some of the mechanisms that we see happening in the fly and in the mouse um, and demonstrate that there are reality in humans that we can't, uh, we can't ignore and even start uh, examining what diets, uh, what preventative methods might exist to, to prevent negative intergenerational or reprogramming effects that happen in utero. So I also had an episode on, on aging and, the most prominent part there was like calorie restriction. Mm -hmm. So this is maybe the holy grail in living longer. Is it also what you see or what you could agree on? As far as the reprogramming. Um, so, un, you know, in the reprogramming sense, undernutrition and overnutrition yeah. both have negative effects. Um, calorie restriction is something I'd, I'm, I'm not an expert in it. Um, the models that create longevity are quite extreme calorie restrictions. So you may you you could say that they are, they mimic really starvation in many okay. respects. Um, so I don't know. We haven't done the t studies, and I don't know the literature on that subject well enough. Um, I I think many of the people thinking of calorie restriction are past their childbearing years, <laughs> uh, so they can probably okay. afford no. to ignore any so get, any get potential intergenerational effects and just focus on the, on extending their own life. So uh, get get children first, and then <laughs> <laughs> go on a diet and exactly, and then yeah, and I think now there's you know there's definitely really healthy diets out there or that ap appear to be healthy things like intermittent fasting. Um, that seem to mimic and stimulate a lot of those same pathways, but without needing to be so extreme. Okay. They sort of mimic how we assume we evolved. We, you know, we assume that we didn't always have abundant food throughout evolution, that we went through lots of periods of minor fasting and so occasionally starvation, um, and that that's actually the way our bodies have been optimized is to deal with those kind of situations. To finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Mm -hmm. um, the first one, did you at one point of your career face a situation where you reached a dead end or did not know where to go? So like, oh, I have done everything that I could think of and now I, I don't know where to go. Or is it just no, like, like you have so many ideas? That it's the total opposite, okay. I think. I think that's one of the, um, for me at least, I can't speak for all PIs, but I think that that transition from postdoc to PI is that, that point at which you have way too many ideas that you really do want the answer to, but you can't do yourself, even though you're one of, by that point, you're one of the most competent, trained people in, in the laboratories. So you have the potential to answer as quickly as possible, as many questions as possible, but that, that uh, you get an imbalance there. Okay. Um, so no, I've always had way more ideas okay. than uh, that I want the answers to, and I think that's what unites all of us and that's why conferences are so important is because people go and they just blurt out all their ideas and interact and, and find commonalities and places to share and synergize and get help yep. on whatever their favorite topic yeah. is that's great so in the last 30 minutes uh incidentally uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings that or so things that we might have missed in this interview Oh, I don't, I don't like talking about myself that much. <laughs> um, It's just a short. You know, we're one little piece of the puzzle. I think that 
the exciting things that have happened in the last in, in epigenetics have have you know the last 20 years of pioneers that i work with but that are my mentors have you know have fought genetics and the and the the massive dogmas of genetics that genetics is everything and they've they've battled it away and and highlighted to the world that there's a lot more there's a lot more besides genetics that that regulates mm -hmm. phenotype and who we are and what we are um and so i'm just one little piece in the puzzle to you know showing our interesting little <laughs> models but um yeah i don't know i don't think we missed too much okay that's great <laughs> so then thank you very much andrew for being part of this show and yeah thanks for having me appreciate it this was the 18th episode of the epigenetics podcast thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed it please rate review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode we are happy to receive your feedback on twitter facebook or linkedin we will read all your reviews and comments and give your shout out on a future episode If you have any further questions, you can also reach out to me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, motivations, at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.